Well, it's great to be together this morning. I hope all of you are looking forward to this time of worship like I have been all week long so we can be together and worship God together. It truly is a blessing to be here this morning. I want to start out by giving you a Project 9K update. Project 9K is our Bible reading challenge here at Netherwood Park. We have challenged ourselves to read as many books as possible as a congregation throughout 2017. And to date, as a congregation, we've read 4,185 books of the Bible. The reason that we have Bible reading challenges is because we believe in the transforming power of God's Word. We believe that every Christian should have a part of their life to be reading the Bible, studying the Bible, engaged in Bible classes and small groups making sure that we are immersed in God's Word so we can know God's Word, so then we can go out and live God's Word in the world in which we find ourselves. So please continue to read, continue to record those results, and let's continue to grow together. Those of you who are doing the sprint to the finish, reading the New Testament in 90 days here at the end of this year, you just finished up Acts. And as you finished up Acts, you found out how Paul finally made his way to Rome It was at the expense of the Roman government with a shipwreck thrown in and a few other things like that. So there are all kinds of exciting and interesting things that you'll find as you continue to read through your Bibles. Something else that I want you to know about this church is not only do we believe in the power of the the word, we also believe in the power of prayer. We believe that prayer is powerful and effective. We are a praying church and we would love to pray for you. If you have a need in your life or you know of a need in the life of someone that you know and love, we would love to hear about that so we can lift your request up to our God. In order to do that, you just need to let us know what that request is. If you'll pull out one of our green communication cards that you'll find in front of you on the side that says prayer request, if you'll just fill in your request and then drop it in one of our collection boxes, We'll send out that prayer request to almost 400 different email addresses, people who are waiting to pray for you. The collection boxes can be found, too, at the very back of the auditorium. You'll find a third one through these double doors. So please take advantage of that. Take advantage of the power of prayer. Something else that you need to know about this church is we are a baptizing church. We believe in the power of baptism. We believe that it's in baptism that we join in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that it's in baptism that we are clothed with Christ. That we rise up out of the water to live a new life. And that's exactly what my buddy Braden Cleghorn did Wednesday night. He was baptized right here. He put on Jesus Christ. He's now not just my buddy, he's my brother. So exciting things. If you believe that Jesus is the Lord... He is the Savior of the universe, and you haven't been baptized, we really should have a conversation about that. If you'd like to have that conversation, you can use that same green card. On the back, you'll see where it says Next Steps. If you'll fill out your contact information, check the box about having a conversation about baptism, either I or one of the elders will contact you right away, and we'll start that conversation. You just drop that in the same collection box that we were talking about for the prayer requests. And the final thing that I want you to know about this church is that we believe in the power of the church. We believe that God created the church for a reason, that we need each other, that we were meant to exist in community, that together we are much stronger than we ever could be apart. And we believe that God works powerfully through the local church. 
So if you've been attending Netherwood for a while and you haven't yet let us know that you would like to be a part of this church, once you use that same green card, fill out your contact information and check the box about having a conversation about being a member of Netherwood Park, drop it in one of those collection boxes, and we'll have that conversation as well. We can talk to you about being a member of this church, of Netherwood Park Church of Christ. So once you do those things, once you communicate with us so that we can communicate with you and we can lift our prayers up to God. Well, if you haven't been here for a while, you may not know, but we are in the midst of an extended sermon series that comes out of the book of Romans. Today we're going to be in the first chapter of Romans, so this would be a good time to grab your Bibles or your phone and turn to Romans chapter 1. And one of the things that we need to understand, make sure that we don't lose sight of as we move through this letter that Paul wrote a couple of thousand years ago to a group of Christians in Rome, is that this letter's focus is on the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans has been called the gospel according to Paul. And it's been called that because in this letter, Paul carefully and fully and passionately explains why the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed good news. Good news not just for him, and good news not just for the Jews, and good news not just for people who consider themselves to be religious, but it's good news for all of mankind. And Paul has this strong belief in the power of the gospel. And his belief in the power of the gospel and his passion for the gospel explains why Paul was always eager to preach the good news. He was eager to preach it anytime, anywhere, to anyone. Paul's belief and passion for the gospel is in many ways summed up in this statement from Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And as we've been working through Romans, each week we've been affirming together and with Paul that we aren't ashamed of the gospel. We've been affirming together that we believe the gospel is the power of God. And it's for salvation. And I want to ask you to do that again today. So if you're here today and you're not ashamed of the gospel, if you believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, I want you to repeat after me this affirmation. I want you to do it boldly. I want you to do it proudly. I want you to do it loudly. So if you will, repeat after me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. And all the church says, Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to continue to make our way through a very challenging, a difficult, and in many ways, a dark portion of Romans. If you were here last week, you know that we began to talk about the truth of God's wrath. And this week and next week, we'll continue that discussion. And like last week, I want to make sure that we all understand some things about God's wrath before we dive into today's text. And the first thing I want to make sure that we all understand is that God's wrath is not like our wrath. 
God's wrath is not an out-of-control, impulsive, capricious anger. The kind of anger that we often see in ourselves and see in others. God is not like us. God doesn't swing wildly and unpredictably from one emotion to another. We also need to understand that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, can't be fully appreciated. It can't be fully understood without recognizing that God's wrath is real. It's a reality. As we said last week, it doesn't make any sense to talk about salvation if there isn't anything to be saved from. It doesn't make any sense to talk about redemption if there's nothing to be redeemed from. So God's wrath in many ways is the dark backdrop on which the gospel shines brightly. The good news shines brightly. Jesus said this in John chapter 3 and verse 16. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is the light of the world, sent to save the world. Save the world from darkness, save the world from God's wrath. And we can only fully appreciate that light, Jesus' light, when we appreciate that without Jesus, all of us are living in darkness. All of us are under God's wrath. And I think this explains why Paul is so passionate about spreading the gospel. Paul can't help but tell the story of his salvation. He can't help but tell the story of his redemption. Because Paul knows he has been called out of his darkness. He's been called into the light of Jesus by Jesus. And Paul can't help but share the good news of Jesus Christ. He can't help but share that news with a world that he has no doubt is living in darkness. He has no doubt is under God's wrath. He has no doubt is in desperate need of Jesus' light. Paul can't help but talk about the light. But when Paul talks about the light, he also talks about the darkness. And so will we. So last week we heard Paul tell us that God's wrath is in response to, God, to man's godlessness and in response to man's wickedness. We said that godlessness is a disregard for God's rights as the sovereign Lord of the universe. It's not recognizing God for who he is, and it's not recognizing ourselves for who we are. When we create other gods, or when we make ourselves God, when we worship idols, we destroy that relationship with God, the vertical relationship that we have with the true God. And we put ourselves under his wrath. And wickedness. Wickedness is closely related to godlessness. Wickedness isn't a disregard for God's rights. Wickedness is a disregard for our neighbor's rights. Instead of loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, we love ourselves at the expense of our neighbor's. And that destroys those relationships. It destroys our relationships 
with our neighbors. And last week we spent most of our time talking about godlessness and about God's wrath in conjunction with godlessness. And this week we're going to spend most of our time talking about wickedness and God's wrath in conjunction with man's wickedness. And the reason that we talked about godlessness first is because godlessness leads to wickedness. Think about it this way. When we worship an idol in the place of God, whether that idol is an actual object made out of wood or stone or metal, or if that idol is ourselves, or if that idol is money or power or influence or sex, when we worship something in the place of God, that thing begins to rule us. That idol rules us. It controls us. And the thing that we have said is our Lord actually becomes our master and we are its slave. And since it rules us, we'll do anything. We'll do anything to have it. We'll do anything to increase it. We'll do anything to keep it. We'll do anything, no matter how destructive that is to ourselves, no matter how destructive it is to others. You see, when our relationship with God isn't right, our behavior isn't right, our actions aren't righteous. Godlessness leads to wickedness. Let's lend our ears to Paul. Let's hear him tell us the truth about man's wickedness. I'm going to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, they, he's talking about the godless, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Godlessness leads to wickedness. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Godlessness leads to wickedness. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul paints a pretty bleak picture, doesn't he? 
He paints a picture of a dark world filled with dark people, a wicked world filled with wicked people. But you also notice that Paul kind of softens the blow a little bit, doesn't he? He softens the blow by talking about the they. He softens the blow by talking about them instead of talking about you and us. Paul says they exchanged. Paul says God gave them over. They did not think. They have become. They are. They invent. And I can only imagine that the Christians in Rome would have known exactly who they and them were. See, the Christians in Rome were surrounded by a pagan culture. And what Paul's doing is he's describing the wickedness of that godless culture. The wickedness of they and them. And I also imagine the Roman Christians are probably a lot like us. Like us, they were probably relieved to hear Paul pointing out the problems with them. In fact, the Roman Christians might have actually enjoyed hearing Paul take on and take down them. We find that's true, don't we? It's a lot easier to hear about their faults. It's a lot more comfortable having someone else's sins highlighted. Well, as you might know, or at least you could probably guess, because of dramatic events and changes in our culture over the last several years, this particular scripture has received a lot of attention. It's received a lot of attention because Paul first addresses sexually, sexual sin in general and then homosexual sin specifically. And while homosexuality and homosexual behavior are not our primary focus this morning, I think there's some things that need to be said on those subjects before we can focus on other points that Paul is making You see, because of events in our culture, the church and Christians recently have been in many ways forced to grapple with the subjects of sexuality and homosexuality in ways that we haven't ever before. We've had to grapple with the right way to respond, the right way to react, the Christ-like way to respond. And I'm here to tell you it hasn't always been easy. There's been a lot of debate. There have been sharp arguments and sharp disagreements over the Christ-like way to respond to these sexual issues. So using this passage of Romans as a backdrop, I want to talk about the right way to respond to sin and wickedness in the world around us and the wrong way to respond to sin and wickedness in the world around us. So first, let's talk about some wrong ways to respond. And I'm going to do this by first talking about some wrong ways to respond to homosexuality and homosexual behavior. And the first wrong response that I have seen among Christians and among churches is when we attempt to downplay or deny the clear teaching of Scripture. See, Paul says here, and the Bible says consistently, that sexual acts, men with men and women with women, is wrong. He says that's sinful, that's wicked. 
And the Christ-like response is not to downplay or deny or ignore this clear teaching of Scripture. That's wrong. But I've also observed a second wrong response among Christians and among churches. And that's to self-righteously treat homosexual sin as a bigger sin or the only sin, a bigger sin than my sin. See, Paul also says here, and the Bible also says consistently, that all sin separates us from God. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short. And Paul even calls himself the chief of sinners. And Jesus Christ died for all sinners involved in all kinds of sin. See, Paul didn't stop writing after verse 27. And we shouldn't stop listening after verse 27. We can't ignore that Paul, through inspiration, wrote that God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. We shouldn't and we can't ignore that Paul wrote that. But we also can't ignore that through inspiration, Paul also wrote this. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what not, ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then he said they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See, it's a problem. It's wrong to readily agree with Paul that homosexual acts are a perversion, literally against nature, and then turn around and fail to agree with Paul that envy and gossip and arrogance and boasting are depraved literally against the nature of God. See, that too is a wrong response. So what's the right response? Well, the right response to homosexual sin is no different than the, response, the right response to any sin. It's no different than the right response to any wickedness, to any behavior causing anyone to live under the wrath of God. And the right response begins with right recognition. See, we need to recognize that Paul's presenting a picture here in Romans that maps very much onto the reality of our world. Like Paul and like the Roman Christians, we live in this world of great beauty. It's a world of majesty. It's a world of wonder. And as Paul said, in God's creation, we see God. In the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of the world, we see God's existence. We see his light. But we also see and recognize that we live in a broken world. This world and we, the people of this broken world, are not what God created us to be. We need to recognize that we're broken. We're perverse. We are depraved. And in the brokenness of the world and in the brokenness of the people in this world, we see God's wrath. 
He has given mankind over to his perversions, over to his depravities. We see our darkness. But we also see the gospel. We see the good news of Jesus Christ being acted out around us. And in the gospel, we see God's love and we see God's mercy. We see that God has come near to us through Jesus Christ. He's come near to us to heal our brokenness, to heal this world's brokenness, and to restore God's light. Yeah, in our world, we see beauty and we see brokenness. And in the gospel, we see hope. And when we recognize that it isn't just they and it isn't just them who are broken, it's also me. It's also you. It's also us who are broken. It's then that we recognize, it's then that we understand that a right response to wickedness and wrath is not to self-righteously roll our eyes about how they are like and about what they are doing. See, these verses from Paul should draw out any self-righteous pride that we might have, any satisfaction that we might have that they are wicked and I am not. See, there can be no, thank God, I'm not like them. Because if we're honest with each other, we are like them. I'm going to do some confessing. Here's my partial list of my depravities. A partial list of how I am not only like them, I am them. I am greedy. I do gossip. I am arrogant. I am boastful. I am unrighteous without the gospel. I deserve death. Oh, and one more to add to the list. I am self-righteous. And that's a problem. Because self-righteousness is always self-condemning. It's always the wrong response. You see, these verses have to always be read in light of the previous verses, verses 16 and 17, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. My righteousness, our righteousness didn't come from ourselves. It comes from God. My salvation, our salvation doesn't come from having faith in self. It comes from having faith in God. And we need to understand and recognize and acknowledge and confess that without the power of the gospel, we were destined for darkness. We were destined for death. We, too, were under God's wrath. So we don't self-righteously roll our eyes at what they are like. 
Instead, we respond rightly in worship because of what our God is like. Merciful and patient, not wanting anyone to perish. We rejoice that we have received, we have been given God's righteousness. It comes through the power of the gospel, not through the power of self. And so we don't greedily and selfishly keep that good news to ourselves. No, instead we respond in love and compassion for them, for those who don't yet know God. And like Paul, we will carry a burden. We'll carry a burden to share the gospel so our neighbor, so they, so those in this broken world can also escape God's wrath. And so they can join us and rejoice with us in God's gift of righteousness. Now, we don't roll our eyes. Instead, we turn our eyes in compassion on broken people and on our broken world And we do that as we recognize that if Jesus was willing to die for sinners like me, if he was willing to die for sinners like us, there's no one in this world he wouldn't die for. And because Jesus is our Lord and Master, and because he loved us enough to die for us, that sets us free. It sets us free to love like he loved compassionately, generously, unselfishly. We're set free to love others like we love ourselves. Now, we don't roll our eyes about they and them. Instead, we accept Jesus' definition of who our neighbors are. It's that Samaritan beside the road. It's that woman at the well. It's that short tax collector up the tree. It's the perverted and the depraved. It's the wicked who are under God's wrath. It's, it's you and me. See, our neighbors are all the people that our culture, including our church culture sometimes, all the people who our culture wants to tell us are or maybe should be beyond help, beyond God's help. And that's the power of the gospel that Paul's talking about. That no one is beyond God's help. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul isn't ashamed of that gospel. Let's pray. Father, we live in a dark world. But Father, we in many ways are filled with darkness ourselves. And Father, we rejoice that you sent Jesus Christ, your Son, to bring your light into this world. And Father, we confess that we are not righteous, but you have made us righteous. And Father, we confess that in many ways we are perverted and depraved, but you have set us free, you have washed us clean, you have forgiven our sins. You have taken us from under your wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, give us a heart and a passion to share that gospel to those in our broken world who desperately need your light. We pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the light.
Amen. So in Jesus Christ, there is no they and them. Because here in the church, in this place, we have Jesus in common. And because we have Jesus in common, we have everything in common. Let's stand, let's sing about our common love. Amen.